Okay, so I actually want you to turn uh, to start out to Acts chapter 14. Go to Acts chapter 14. And we can take it now to the next slide. There should be a little map that we have up here on the screen that I'm going to want us to talk about. We looked at a lot of maps at the beginning of our series in the book of Galatians, and it's been a long time, so I think it would be good for us to have a little bit of a refresher. You guys know that what's so powerful about the book of Acts is that kind of like the Gospels, the book of Acts is giving the history of the early church. Uh, Now that Jesus has ascended back up into heaven, he's at the right hand of the Father, the book of Acts tells us the Acts, or what the apostles did, following Jesus going back into heaven, and that includes the Apostle Paul. So every time you're reading a book from the New Testament, whether it's Galatians or Ephesians or Philippians or Colossians or Romans, always look at the book of Acts. You'd be surprised how much background information you can learn about a book in the New Testament just by seeing the events that took place in those specific cities. And we know that in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 13 and 14 especially, we see what's called Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, And his first missionary journey was in, I'm going to step out of the screen here, uh, was in this northern region uh, that we call Galatia. Today it's modern-day Turkey uh, in the cities of uh, Lystra, uh, in Derby, uh, Italia, Perga, uh, here here in the northern region of Galatia. Uh, But instead of reviewing all of that, I want us to actually look at uh, a specific set of verses Uh, specifically in Acts chapter 14, and we are going to look at verse 24. This is coming uh, to the end of his first missionary journey. So he left from Antioch over here. He he came to uh, the island of Cyprus. Uh, Then he sailed up into what is Galatia, today modern-day Turkey, and he visited these cities. But I want you to read these verses, and I want you to notice by looking on the map if you notice anything interesting. There's a point to all of this in using this as our introduction. It says in Acts 14, verse 24, that then they, this is Paul and Barnabas, they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. This is at the end of their missionary journey. And when they had spoken the word to Perga, they went down to Italia. Look at the names of those cities and look at the order of the names of those cities here at the end of his missionary journey. Verse 26, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And I'll just end the chapter. Uh, And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Do you guys notice anything interesting about what's happening at this missionary journey based on the cities that Paul is passing through. I want you to look at the map and and look at where he started off. He started off here in Antioch. He comes to Cyprus, sails up to Galatia, and he starts in Italia, comes up to Pisidian, then Iconium, then Lystra, then Derbe. And look how far he has gone in his kind of circle around this region. He's now at the end of his missionary journey. You would think that Paul being so close to where he started, would just continue on his missionary journey and return home the shortcut way. This is also very powerful because remember, where is Paul from? Paul of Tarsus. Tarsus. Look how close he is to his hometown. 
you would think that just practically, logistically, at the end of his missionary journey, he would just go to Tarsus, maybe stay with some aunts and uncles or cousins, and then go back to Antioch where he started. But he didn't do that. What did he do instead? He went the long way, and every city that he had just visited, he went back and he visited them again. He visited again so that he could encourage them, so that he could teach them again. He literally went out of his way to make sure that he was spiritually caring for these Galatians. Think about that when you turn to Galatians chapter 4, and you see a verse like chapter 4, verse 8, or I'm sorry, uh, verse 11, where he says, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Think about the power of that. Because these aren't just words. This isn't just Paul speaking in a vacuum. This is a person who had been stoned, who had been attacked, who had been persecuted in these cities, and by the time he had gotten through them, instead of saying, whew, I'm glad that's over with, time to go to Tarsus with mom and apple pie. No, he literally went out of his way to go back to these cities. All for these Galatians, these people that he had suffered for, struggled over, and cared for, to be led astray. All for these spiritual children to be bewitched, as he says in Galatians chapter 3, to be led astray by these Judaizers and to turn away from the message that he was giving them. They had turned away from that. And just like Paul is dealing with this struggle, is dealing with this disappointment of people that he has prayed for, people that he has served, people that he has cared for, turning away from the faith or struggling in the faith, Do we not also have people in our life, family members, friends, neighbors, whose salvation we have been praying for for years and for years with no answer? Do we not have children or grandchildren who have struggled in their adult life, who who have maybe gone away from the Lord or who have never come to the Lord, and it causes us anguish? and it causes us pain, and it causes us suffering. I want you to know that if you feel that way, whether it's about a family member, or even someone that you used to go to church with, or a neighbor, or a coworker, if you have ever felt disappointed by someone else's spiritual failings, Paul can relate to you. Paul can relate to you. That you're reading not just a theological text in the New Testament, but you're reading a personal letter of a man who went out of his way and struggled and prayed for to care for these people only for it to seem to have been worthless, only for that work to have seemingly been undone, which is why he is writing this letter. And it's why starting in verse 11 and now transitioning into verses 12 through 20, which is going to be our text for today, I think we're going to see one of the rawest, most emotional and definitely the most personal part of Paul's letter to the Galatians. We're not going to be talking about any major theological issues like the role of the law or how we can be crucified with Christ or what it means to live a life by faith. Those are important things. But in this section, as Paul is writing this letter, it's almost like he gets carried away. 
It's almost like he writes in verse 11, I'm afraid that I have labored over you in vain. And then he just starts, he, he just gets carried away with himself. He, he just starts pouring out his heart and, and just letting his heart bleed in front of these people, talking about all that they have gone through together. And even though this is a very personal part of the letter, there's going to be a lesson in this. Because I want us to go to what is technically our big idea for today in the next slide. That in this passage, Galatians chapter three verses, uh, chapter 4, verses 12 to 20, we are going to learn how to spiritually care for others. We're going to learn how to spiritually care for the other person, whether it's a family member, whether it's a spouse, whether it's a friend, whether it's a neighbor, whether it's someone that we go to chamber with or that we're part of the community council with whether it's someone here in Bayview, whoever it may be, I want you to know that it's not just the job of the elders or the pastors to minister to people, that we are called, all of us, ministers of reconciliation, that you and me, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are also called to make disciples. You are called to spiritually care for other people. That's not just something for Paul to do, and that's not just something for a pastor to do or for elders to do. That's something for all of us Christians to do. So as we go through this passage, we're going to look at four lessons. And we can keep it on this for right now. We're going to look at four lessons. And it's all going to point to this major big idea of how we can spiritually care for others. But before we do that, we can go to the next slide now. I want to give you guys a little bit of warning. This is very important when it comes to reading our Bible. This is one of those little kind of seminary or Bible college nuggets that I had to pay for that you're going to get for free. Okay. <laughs> Don't you love it? That's great. That uh, when we read the Bible, uh, there's a difference between what's called descriptive and prescriptive language. Prescriptive means that the Bible is telling you to do something. Kind of like a doctor will prescribe something to you, say, take two aspirin and call me in the morning. Prescriptive language is when the Bible says, thou shalt dot, dot, dot. And we see that all throughout the New Testament. We, we see that in the Ten Commandments. This is prescriptive language of what we are told to do, as opposed to descriptive language. Descriptive language is when it tells us something that someone else did. It describes something that happens, something that Jesus did, something that Paul did, something that one of the disciples did. That's descriptive language. So, for example, um, Jesus, when he washed feet, that was descriptive language. It said that Jesus washed these feet and, and he loved these people in this way. And we know that now. That's descriptive. Prescriptive language, maybe at the Last Supper, is when Jesus has the Last Supper with his disciples, but then he tells them, do this in remembrance of me. Therefore, that's why we take communion. But unlike some of the churches in Pennsylvania where I grew up, we, we don't wash each other's feet. Because that's descriptive language versus prescriptive language. And actually, a lot of bad theology can actually come out by letting descriptive language override prescriptive language. In fact, most of charismatic theology comes from an overemphasis on descriptive language. Saying, hey, they did this, they did this, therefore that means we're supposed to do this. That's why we need to understand the difference. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because what we're going to read today, this is descriptive language. This is descriptive language of Paul describing his relationship with the Galatians. That doesn't mean that teaching isn't going to come from it, though. Because the Bible also tells us that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching. 
all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, both the descriptive language and the prescriptive. But we just need to recognize that we should always allow the prescriptive language to always hold authority over the descriptive language. We should never reverse it. So what we're going to see today is Paul is going to model how we can spiritually care for others. We're going to look at examples that Paul gives us. But the only reason why these examples matter is because of other places in Scripture where God commands us to love people and to spiritually care for them, like the passage that we did during our Scripture reading. That wasn't an accident. All right, so that, that was us throwing some prescriptive language for what's going to happen descriptively. Okay, I wanted to share that with you guys. I hope I didn't get into the weeds too much, but it's important that we recognize that. So let's start out then with the first point, the, the, the first example that Paul gives of how we can spiritually care for others. We're going to see this in verse 12 of chapter 4. He starts out and he says, brothers. Notice the family language that he uses here. Brothers, I entreat you. Become as I am, because I also have become as you are. The first lesson that we can see from the example given by Paul in this descriptive language is that we want to spiritually care for people. This might be the most controversial of them all, actually. So we're going to start out with a bang. That we need to be willing to become like others for the sake of the gospel. Paul very famously says how he became all things to all people. To Jews, he became like Jews. To Gentiles, he became like Gentiles. In the same way, when we care for people, we need to make sure that we are able to build a relationship with them that enables us to share the gospel with them. Now, of course, this is the kind of lesson or this is the kind of example that comes with a million caveats, doesn't it? Because becoming all things to all people doesn't mean becoming a drunk at the bar in order to reach drunks at the bar for the sake of Jesus. It doesn't mean that. But you don't think when I teach middle schoolers at Camp Coquilala Lake that I'm not talking to them and sharing them stories that I probably wouldn't share with you guys? And don't you think that there are jokes or there are things that I say to you guys that if I tried to pull that off at a middle school retreat, it just wouldn't work? That's what we mean by becoming all things to all people. Learning how can we find common interests? How, how, how can we humble ourselves and say that uh, even though we may not necessarily agree on everything, or even though we may not necessarily have the same interests, or maybe this isn't the kind of person that I would normally hang out with, because this person has been brought into my life by God, and because I have been commanded to love others and to make disciples, Instead of thinking about whether or not this person is good enough to be my friend, I'm going to think about whether or not this person is good enough to be forgiven by Jesus. And the answer to that question is yes. Therefore, let's not just disciple our friends, although that's a great place to start. Let's not just disciple Republicans. Let's just not uh, disciple the people who already agree with us. Let's be willing to disciple the people who are also different from us. It doesn't mean that we are becoming subjective or saying that we don't have convictions or we're saying that truth doesn't matter, but it says that we are going to suspend those things or we're not going to make those things as important with, uh, as the gospel for the sake of loving those people. Your son or your daughter or your grandson or your granddaughter may have opinions that are just flat out dumb, all right? Okay, I didn't expect to see all the nodding heads, but okay. Um, it doesn't mean that those ideas aren't dumb or that you should pretend like those ideas are good. 
But have care and love for your son or your grandson or your daughter or your granddaughter that says, instead of just getting rid of these bad opinions, I want to get rid of this bad heart. I, I want to get rid of this bad spirit of, of pride and of selfishness by pointing them to their need for Jesus. And God's Holy Spirit will take care of those other things. God's Holy Spirit will take care uh, of those other issues through his sanctification process. And we see this modeled in Paul. Paul was a Hebrew among Hebrews, as he says in Philippians chapter 3. Concerning the law, he was a Pharisee, as he says in Philippians chapter 3. Yet, despite those things, despite being a person that would look at a Gentile with distaste, once Paul became a Christian, what does he do? He just starts going out looking for Gentiles. He's going out on missionary journeys. Even for 15 years, he's going out in the wilderness, and he is reaching and he is discipling Gentiles. And he's teaching them. And he's not saying that you have to be circumcised like me. He's going to these Gentiles, making sure that he is prioritizing the gospel. And that's why in verse 12, he says, since I have become as you are, this is a very powerful thing for Paul to say, become as I am. Which means that this is also a two-way street. That if we're going to be willing to become like others for the sake of the gospel, we need to also ask ourselves, are we living like Christ in such a way that we could tell the people that we are trying to reach with the gospel for them to act like us? That's a convicting thing, isn't it? That, 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 that would take a lot of power to, to tell someone that uh, I, I want to love you and care for you for the sake of making you like Jesus, and if you want to know what it means to be like Jesus or follow Jesus, just do as I do. Could you say that to a lost friend? Could you say that to, uh, to a loved one who doesn't know Jesus? Man, I don't know if I could always say that. That's convicting for me. But this is one of the first examples that Paul gives of, of how we can spiritually care for others, which is being willing to become like others. Not suspending truth, not endorsing evil, but being willing to build relationships with people that are different from us for the sake of the gospel. Let's go to the second point. The second point is going to be uh, to be willing to be considered an enemy for telling biblical truth. And you're going to see where my asterisks are for that. Let's read through uh, the, the rest of the passage now. We're going to cover a little bit of ground. He says uh, in, in verse 12, he says, Become as I am, for I have become as you are. And then he says, You did me no wrong. He says, You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel, your passage might say, but angel in the Greek is the same word for messenger. So, so the key here is that Paul is being received as an apostle or as a messenger of God and of Jesus Christ. Things were starting off well. He had a friendship with these people is the point that's being made here. Let's keep reading in verse 15. What then, after all that you've done for me, after the incredible hospitality and friendship that you've shown for me, verse 15, what then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me. This is why we believe, by the way, that the thorn in Paul's flesh, this physical ailment, probably had something to do with his eyes. He says that you would have gouged out your own eyes and given to me. That's how much you cared for me. That's, that's how much you loved me. But in verse 16, he says, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? This is a hard thing to read, guys. 
How many of us have ever had a situation where we were friends with someone, where we had a good relationship with someone, where maybe we had a, a loving relationship with a, with a member of our family, but then because we spoke truth in their life in a moment when they needed to hear truth, that we became their enemy. We have to be willing to do that, guys. And I say this as a guy who has gone through that. And it's my least favorite part of pastoral ministry. It's not that we are called to become enemies of people. That's not the issue at all. We are called to become like others and to become friends of people and to love people. We shouldn't have this militant attitude that says, I'm going to go out of my way to become an enemy of others. Absolutely not. But by looking at the example of Paul, by looking at the example of Jesus, we need to be willing to love people enough that says that we are going to care for them and also to tell them the truth even if they manipulate you as a result and try to paint you as a villain and try to paint you as an enemy. And I guarantee you that they will. I guarantee you that they will. Not just in my experience, which that really doesn't matter so much, but any pastor's experience, any parent that I've talked to where, where the kid just says, well, well you're judgmental, mom. Well, well, you're backwards. You're racist. You, 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 you're narrow-minded because you're telling me that I have to do these things. They will always go down that path because if, they're, if you're the villain, then that means that they're not the villain. And, and they refuse to admit that they have sin in their life, so they're going to try to make it very clear that you are the one that's the enemy. You're the one that's bad. You're the one who has done wrong. These people that Paul has, has suffered for and has cared for and who he had a beautiful relationship with, so much so that they would have given him their own eyes. He now says, I've become your enemy for the sake of telling you the truth. We have to be willing to do that. We have to be willing to go through that. And again, I think this might actually be, again, one of the more controversial parts of this sermon. I have only been a dad for, what, six days? <laughs> How much can I really talk about parenthood? Um, but I can only imagine, as I've, as, as I've talked to many of you, as I've talked to other people, one of the biggest hang-ups that comes up when parents want me to pray for their kids or, or when they have spiritual struggles with, with their kids and they don't know what to do, the biggest issue that comes up is, is they say, I don't want to lose them. I don't want to lose them. If, if I speak truth in their life, if I tell them that they shouldn't be living with this person, if I tell them that they shouldn't be living this way, if I tell them that they need to get right with the Lord or they need to find a local church or that they're living in sin, I'm going to lose them. They're going to hate me. I'm not going to be able to see my grandkids. I'm not going to be able to see my children. Again, perhaps controversial. Is your desire greater for the love of your kids and for the love of your Lord? Where's our priority here? Are you willing to love your kids enough? Are you willing to love the name of Jesus enough? A name that is above every name, including the name of Anna Louise. Are you willing to love that name enough to say for the sake of that name, I am going to love even my children, even if they call me their enemy. I'm going to continue to pray for them. Again, only a six-day dad. I, I can only speak so much to that. But I want to encourage you guys with that. And I want to challenge you with that. And I also want you to know that if you're suffering with that, 
and you're struggling with that, there's a good chance that the other people here in this room are as well. Find them. Talk to them about it. When you go to women's Bible study, ask them to pray about it. I think, you, I think we would all be surprised how much we are going through this together. So let's encourage these people. Not that we're trying to reject our family or our friends. Absolutely not. Now, not, not that we're doing some kind of exile or, or excommunication. By no means would I ever want to suggest that kind of language for what we should do at church. But what I'm talking about is a love for uh, the people around us that is willing to speak truth even if they call us their enemy as a result. That's sin saying that in their life. Let's go to the next point. The third example that Paul gives us of how we can spiritually care for others is to be willing to suffer over a long period of time for someone's spiritual state. And we can read in verse 17. He says that they make much of you. He's referring to these Judaizers. These Judaizers, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. What he's saying here is that these Judaizers, these Jewish people who are telling the Gentiles that you have to be a Jew first in order to become a Christian, the only reason why they're doing that is that they care more about Judaism than they care about the gospel. That they care about themselves and that they don't really care about the Gentiles. They care about themselves because they want the Gentiles to become like them. They want to mold these Gentiles into the name of Judaism, not in the name of Jesus, is what Paul is saying here. And then going on in verse 19, look at what he says where he says, my little children. The disciple John is famous for using this kind of language. If you read 1 John again and again, he's going to say, my children, my children, my little children. He loves using that language. Paul doesn't use it nearly as much, but when he does, it means something. It has power because he rarely uses it. He says, my children, and look at what happens next in verse 19 for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul is using this analogy. These people that he's cared for, these people that he's struggled over and he's suffered for, he's comparing it to a woman going through labor. He's describing it as a woman going through the pain and through the suffering and through the, uh, the, the hard work of delivering a baby. He says, that's what I'm doing for you guys in order that Christ may be formed in you. Or, or in other words, that, that you might spiritually grow in the Lord so that people can see Christ evident in your life. He describes it as a long labor period. It's almost as if he says, it's like, I, I, I've delivered you, I've had you, I've gone on this missionary journey, yet I'm still now put in this position where I still have to go through these labor pains. We also still have to be willing to suffer. We still have to be willing to go through labor pains, as Paul puts it, for those people that God has put around us, those people that God has called us to spiritually care for. I know that so many of you, you've prayed for certain people in your life for decades. I know that. Right. I, I know that there are people that, um, 
You care about them so much that it causes you to weep at the end of the day as you hear new struggles that they're going through or old habits that they're falling into. I know that. Grief is great. Grief is great. But know that we have a Savior who is acquainted with grief and that he is also a man of sorrows. And that when Lazarus was dead and Jesus came up to his tomb, Jesus knew that in a few minutes Lazarus was going to be alive again, but he still wept because of the consequences of sin on his friend. Know that we have a Savior and know that there was an apostle who could share with your suffering over loved ones that you care for spiritually. And don't give up. Don't give up. A woman giving labor continues through that suffering. She, she, she continues through that labor. She keeps pushing. She keeps enduring, just waiting for and hoping for that moment when her baby will come. She knows that it's going to come. Let's also suffer for our loved ones with the same kind of faith that knows that God is going to be faithful in his promises. Let's pray as if God is going to fulfill those prayers. And in the meantime, let's suffer, let's grieve, but church family, let's suffer and grieve together. Share about it at your Waypoint group. Share about it at, at, your, at your Bible study. When you're fellowshipping, when you're at potluck, share those things with each other and let's lift and build each other up as we suffer for our loved ones and for our neighbors who need Jesus. That's why we have church. Not just so that individuals can come and listen to the same sermon in the same room, but so that we as brothers and sisters in Christ can encourage each other as we are considered enemies, as we're seeking to reach others, as we're suffering with others, to keep doing it, to stay faithful, because God is a faithful God. And then let's finally end this passage in verse 20 of chapter 4, where Paul says that, I wish I could be present with you. Yeah, I bet. These Judaizers are talking into the Gentiles' ear. Paul has worked so hard. You just wish, you know, imagine if he knew about international flight nowadays, you know, or commercial flight or high-speed rail, just how quickly he could be there. Even to just hop on FaceTime and to just speak truth in their life. That's something that he's longing for. He says, I wish I could be present with you now. And look at what he says next. And change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. It's such an interesting end to Paul, and I think it's, it's where we see the humanness of Paul. And as we look at this Bible that has kind of this divine confluence of, uh, of on one hand, it's being inspired by God, and, and God is communicating through his word. But on the other hand, God is using human authors who have thoughts and feelings and emotions to also communicate his word. I think this is where we see some of the humanness of scripture as well. Where, where Paul's writing this letter and he's just, he's letting his heart pour out and he catches himself at the end and he says, I just wish I could be with you and change my tone. Apparently he felt like his tone in these verses was, was rather harsh or rather direct. And he says that if I was with you, I would change that tone. And he says, for I am perplexed about you. Let's go to our final and fourth point. And it concerns our attitude towards these people. It concerns our attitude towards the lost. He says, be willing to control your tone even when frustrated by others' spiritual failings. When other people call you an enemy, don't, mean that they, don't let that mean that you have to consider them an enemy. And that's very, very tempting. 
when people want to say that you're an enemy for speaking truth in your life, that may be true for them, but that doesn't have to be true for you. In the same way, when you're suffering over a long period of time, don't become high and mighty and wag your finger and say, do you know how long I prayed for you? Do you know how much I care for you? And you keep coming into these same mistakes. You keep walking away from the Lord. Don't get high and mighty. Be like Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, who took on the form of a servant. In, in your interaction with others, make sure that your tone is Christ-like. That's why we read what we did in Ephesians chapter 4. There's a lot being said nowadays about how Christians need to be very strong and bold and even use mocking language for, for, for the sake of portraying truth. That is wrong. That is wrong. And that's another example of classic descriptive language where people say, well, Jesus flipped tables or Elijah made fun of these false prophets and it's using descriptive language over prescriptive language where prescriptive language says, love your enemies, build each other up, do not speak with malice towards others. That is prescriptive language that we see all throughout scripture. And as we deal with the lost, even when we're talking about the lost and they're not here, when we're talking about the lost uh, when, when we're at a church event, let's, let's honor them and speak about them respectfully, even if they are doing wrong, even if they are just being idiots. And trust me, I think we can all think of people that we care for who have acted like idiots. Let's be careful in our tone about how we talk about them and also about how we talk to them. That's an example given by Paul that I think also reflects the commands given in the New Testament and that I think will aid us, not just in our effectiveness to reach other people with the gospel, but also for our own spiritual state. Because if we try to love others in such a way that it makes us bitter and it makes us angry towards others and it gives us an us-against-the-world kind of attitude, that's counterproductive. And that's the sermon. Paul ends... He says, I need to change my tone. I'm perplexed about you. I wish I could be with you. And he's going to get back into the theology next week. And that's okay. But I'm glad that we had a chance to see the human side of Paul. And I'm glad that the Holy Spirit was willing to use the human side of Paul to communicate God's truth as an example of how we can love and suffer for others through these four ways. By becoming like others, by telling them biblical truth, even if it makes us an enemy, an enemy by suffering over a long period of time, and by controlling our tone and our attitude while we do it. This is one of those sermons that really doesn't need any application, does it? Because we all have the examples already in our mind. We all have the people that we care about. We all have those instances already present in our heart. So let's go and do these things, and let's encourage each other in these things. I want to challenge you guys to share these instances with each other this upcoming week. Pray with me.